What I'd like to talk about tonight in our class, first of all, is the practice of generosity, but I would like to try to view it perhaps in a slightly different way. When we think about everything that we perceive, and when we look at our environment, and when we check ourselves to see how we feel in our minds, whatever our activity is, it will have to do with one of those things. We're always either reacting to or registering in some way how we feel, and we're always acting in such a way as to get a different feeling or to learn to feel differently or to uh, cause a certain event to take place or a certain change within our internal environment. Or we are, if we are not doing that, then we are reacting to some external phenomena. We are reacting to our external environment. But even so, reacting to our external environment always takes into account how we feel. We never lose sight of how we feel. We are always monitoring ourselves. And uh, we are always thinking as well about how we can change our environment, how we can change it. And we always change it in order to get to feel the way that we want to feel. And how is it that we want to feel? We want to feel happy. Isn't that true? We want to feel content, we want to feel free of suffering, free of stress. Basically, all sentient beings are endlessly involved in the activity of trying to be happy. And that's always what's happening. So it's very difficult for us to practice generosity on an ongoing basis. Think about the activity that you yourself have engaged in over the last 24 hours. Take a moment, really, and think about that. What did you do? Did you work today? Did you spend some time in practice? Did you have any social obligations? Are you involved in certain projects? Did you have family time? What did you do over the last 24 hours? And think of how you engaged in that activity. Whether you did so wishing truly to benefit sentient beings, whether that was your first and foremost thought, or whether you spent a goodly portion of the last 24 hours trying to accomplish something that you feel is personally very important in order for you to feel personally the way you wish to feel. Whether you wish attention, whether you wish accomplishment, whether you wish to strengthen your ego in one way or another. Think of the things that you've done over the last 24 hours, and I think you'll agree that's basically what we have all been involved in. Even if we've done Dharma activity, for the most part, we have done it for selfish purposes. And those purposes are, of course, uh, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, to make ourselves feel busy and wanted and necessary and energetic, or perhaps to make ourselves feel spiritual and holy and pure. So we are always involved in that kind of activity, and therefore it becomes very difficult to be generous. How should one be generous? In what regard should we consider this generosity? Well, traditionally, <clears throat> we should actually view all phenomena not as something we can have or not have, as something that we can be attracted to or repelled by. We should actually view all phenomena as being some pure celestial offering that we can actually offer to the three precious jewels 
we should view all that we see, our world, all of the 3,000 myriads of universes, as being this exquisite and extremely vast celestial mandala. We should think of, of, of phenomena as being Mount Meru and all of the surrounding continents and all of the beautiful uh, surrounding areas. And we should think that all sights and all smells and all sounds and all sensations as being transformed into precious jewels that we can offer to the three precious jewels themselves. How, how many of us actually do that, however? Think about the way that we react to phenomena. Think about taste, for instance. When we eat some food, we don't think of that experience of taste or the food itself as being phenomena uh, which, when purely perceived, is only a celestial substance which can be offered to the three precious jewels, which is really not ours to have. It's not like that. But we don't think like that. We actually eat the food and we eat it with a desire. You know, we eat it with lust. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for myself as well. I'm thinking about my supper tonight. My supper tonight was very delicious to me because by the time I got home from working out, I was extremely hungry for it. And I did think about it all the way home. And, you know, I have to confess to you that if the three precious jewels appeared to me in some celestial form and said to me, I'd like that chicken, yeah, I, I it would have been a stretch. <laughs> it would have been a stretch to give that chicken up because I was ready for it. I might have done it, but not with my whole heart. So I know that if this is the case with some of us, it's probably the case with all of us. And, and that is that we view our environment, we view such things as taste with a tremendous amount of lust, more lust than we think. We go shopping at the store to buy some food. We want the best apples, don't we? We, we want the best apples, we want the purest, we want the finest, with the ones that are, that are best produced in the, in the nicest way. We really want that. We want, to, we want the best carrot cake, we want the best meat, we want the best vegetables, we want the best. And um, so in thinking like that, we're not really mindful of, of generosity. We're, we're not really engaging in offering everything that is in our environment to the three precious jewels. Actually, that is the true practice of generosity. That is uh, the, the deeper and, and much more profound, the truest practice of, of what we practice in our mundro as mandala offering. That is the deepest way that one should engage in that practice, is to constantly be offering one's environment. When we think of color, we think of color as being especially pleasing. I wore this pleasing color for you. Do you like that color? It's a beautiful color, isn't it? And when we look at that color, we look at it with lust. It's a beautiful color. We want that color. Do you want that color? There's something about that color that attracts you, and your eyes are drawn to it, and your feelings are drawn to it. Perhaps you yourself don't think you look good in that color, or perhaps you don't particularly like to wear that color but you perceive the color in such a way as to either be attracted to it and lusting of, after it, or there's, there's a, a denial or rejection of that. Or there's a neutral rejection, but neutral um, reaction, but that neutral reaction really only takes place after we've already run through 
the desire or the rejection. We have to have passed through both of those before we can actually experience neutral reaction. So everything is like that. Everything is like that. Actually, it should be practiced, uh, generosity should be practiced in such a way that we should offer the very senses that we have. But do we offer the senses that we have? Do we offer our taste to the three precious jewels? Do we offer our hearing to the three precious jewels? Well, we might say that. We might say, oh, yes, yes, I, I offer my taste to the three precious jewels. I offer my feeling to the three precious jewels. But we can't wait for the next taste. You know, we can't wait for the next feeling. We want to touch. We want to feel. We want to be established as a sentient being, as a feeling being. We want to continue that continuum of being established as a sentient being. And so we can't wait for the next touch, the next sight. We long for it. We look, constantly looking, aren't we? Do you walk outside and just like stare into th space three feet in front of you and visualize yourself as the deity? No, you look around. You look around. You look around constantly. You check and see whether the trees are with leaf or without leaf. You look at the colors, sniffing the air, smelling everything. The senses are yours. And you have no intention of giving them up. You have no intention of offering to the three precious jewels. And yet that is true generosity. What is the basis of that generosity? If I, if I make that kind of offering, how is, that, how is that a benefit? If the three precious jewels, like I'm thinking about the Buddha, let's say there's this enlightened Buddha, okay? Let's think about this in a very ordinary way, the way that probably we would reason this through if we were going to think about it. Let's think about, like, let's think that there's this Buddha floating around in space somewhere. That's what they do when they're not incarnate, isn't it? They sort of float around in space. <laughs> You got that right. You understand the Dharma, don't you? <laughs> so anyway, they're floating around in space. And um, so here's the Buddha floating around in space. And so now you're thinking, uh, what does the Buddha need? If the Buddha wanted my taste, wanted my sight, wanted my hearing, wanted my touch, he'd get his own. And there's always a, he's always a boy, isn't he? <laughs> he'd get his own. He'd just get his own. He couldn't get his own. Shakyamuni did it. Gurumbache did it. They got their own. So, what, it isn't real. what's the good of it? Why does he need all that stuff? It, it, you know, the Buddha can do anything. A truly enlightened being can develop all, can manifest all kinds of incredible cities, you know, powers. Uh, the, the, the enlightened Buddha can have all the wealth at, at the, of the world. At, at his or her disposal. I have to throw the her in there because it makes me feel better. <laughs> so, you know, they just, they, they have anything at their disposal, anything that they want. So, why do I have to offer the world to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas? Why do I have to offer this phenomenal existence to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas? Don't they have enough? They have enough, they have more than me. They have anything they want. Isn't that right? So why do I have to do that? Well, why do you have to do that? Well, first of all, there's, there's a real logic behind that. 
And you should not approach an issue such as this from an emotional level. You should not be thinking, because I'm supposed to be offering and offering and being generous and having a moving emotional experience all the time. It's not like that. You're not supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to think about this in a very logical way. So the only way to think about this in a logical way is to ask yourself a question. How long are you going to have this stuff? Think about it. You're going to have sight until your eyes go. If your eyes last until the end of your life, they will surely die when your head dies. <laughs> You're going to have touch so long as you have skin to touch with or to feel with. You're going to have skin as long as the body inside the skin remains alive. Because as soon as that body is dead, forget the skin. It's not going to do you any good. Same thing with smell. How long are you going to have smell? So long as you have a nose or in all the parts therein. But the minute you don't have a nose or the body dies, nobody's breathing. There's no way to smell. Nothing happening. Same thing with hearing. Same thing with all of the different perceptual experiences that you have, but especially it's true of the methods which with you detect perceptual experience. You will have them maybe until your body dies. When your body dies, what will you have? Will you have ears? Will you have a nose? Will you have fingers to touch or skin? Will you have any of that? It seems like I'm making a big deal about this, right? But have you thought about that? How long will you have this thing that you're holding on to, that you're clinging to? You'll have it maybe, if you're lucky, until the time of your death. But when you die, you'll have none of that. None of that will travel with you. The teaching traditionally says that at the time of death we can take with us not so much as a sesame seed. And that doesn't mean you can't take your car with you. We already know that. That doesn't mean you can't take your family with you. We already know that. That doesn't mean that you can't take your money with you. We already know that. But neither can you take any of your experiences with you. Think about that. Have you thought about that? That doesn't connect, does it? Because we really think that we are going to be able to take our experiences with us. We think that we're going to be able to carry that through into the bardo. And in the bardo, we'll comfortably be saturated with and surrounded by our usual experiences. But that isn't true. That is not true. We will not be able to take into the bardo anything of what we know now, not so much as a sesame seed. The only thing that goes into the bardo with you is ripening and yet unripened cause and effect relationships that will continually ripen through the bardo and habitual tendency. Habitual tendency, that's what you'll take with you into the bardo. So if you spent your whole life thinking, my nose, my eyes, my ears, give me, let me establish myself through what I see. If you have clung to your experiences, you have milked them for all they're worth. You know, if you have 
gone through your life establishing yourself at every moment and your particular neuroses, that is what you will continue to do in the bardo. Because you will continue to engage in that habitual tendency. Literally, if it is your habit to go to the store a couple of times a week and just be fanatical about finding the best figs or the best apples or whatever, if that's, what, that's your thing, if that's your gig, you will not have a fig or an apple in the bardo. Think about that. You will not even have a stomach and a mouth to taste them with. But what you are going to have is the habit of that longing, of that desire, of that wanting. You'll have that habit. And if it is your habit to look for approval, and you spend your whole life gathering things, situations, people around you to set yourself up, and that's your gig, you will not be able to take one thing, one situation, or one person with you when you enter into the bardo. All you will have is that need, that habit of need, and all of the karma that you have engendered from establishing that need. That's what will go into the bardo with you. So the logic of the generosity that I'm speaking of tonight, of, the, of practicing making offerings of everything in your environment to the three precious jewels, is that there's no reason not to. Everything that you're holding on to, you cannot take with you. It will not be yours. It will never be yours. All that you have is the habit of longing. That's all you have. That's, 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 you, that's what you're going to walk away from this with. So, if we can really think about that and think about it deeply and try to understand to the degree that we can really see it isn't only cars and money we can't take with us. It isn't only... personal belongings, those gross things that are pretty easy to give up. A person can give up a car. We can do that. That's not so hard. You can give up certain things that uh, you're used to having. That's not so hard. But what you really have to examine is the fact that you can't take anything with you, including the perceptual process, even that subtle, even something that subtle, the perceptual process that you're so deeply entrenched in now. That's a mind-blowing thought if you really think of how much of your time is spent in cultivating that, isn't it? Your whole life, nothing else, you do nothing else whole life is spent simply cultivating these things that will let you down, that will do you no good. Now, of course, you have received teachings about renunciation before, but this is a much deeper view of it, isn't it? Now, as I'm saying, it is, it is easy to give up things. It ev it's even easy to change some bad habits that are grossly obvious. We can see that. 
but so much harder to really examine how it is that we move through our lives, what it is that we're gathering around us. Even if we spend the whole day in Dharma activity, haven't you done that? Haven't you spent the whole day in Dharma activity and then looked back at that day and saw that it was that you clung to every piece of it? Every piece of it was yours. Your taste, your smell, your hearing, your aptitude, your activity, your thing, and it was really all about you. There was no there is no moment at which you truly recognize the teaching of the Buddha in any of that. Isn't that true? No moment at which you understood, finally, that you cannot even take one moment of perception, one sesame seed of phenomenal reality with you. But that simply isn't possible. There's no getting around it, and we try to escape it at every moment. We simply try to escape it constantly. There's no way around the event that will actually take place at the end of our lives. That will surely happen, and it will surely be as it has always been. And yet we don't want to think about that. We can't think about it. We can't seem to let ourselves think about it. We don't want to reckon with the fact that all we're going to come out of this with, it will not be our bodies, it will not be our feelings, it will not be our emotions, it will not be our mental insights. How many of you love your mental insights? Don't you just love your mental insights? Thank you. I mean, it's true. We do. We all do. We love our mental insights. We will not come out of it with our mental insights. We will not come out of this with any object that we have moved toward or gone away from. Nothing. But we will come out of it with the habit of clinging to self-nature, won't we? That's what we're going to have. That habit of clinging to self-nature. And if you establish either an emotional or intellectual superstructure in order to cling to that self-nature, it, it will not be the superstructure, it will be the habit of doing that that you will come out of this with. Plus, all of the karma that you engendered in the interactive process necessary to do that. That's what you will come out of it with. That's hard to take. So hard to take, isn't it? Because that's all we've ever done. All we've ever done. Now we have to bring ourselves back to the question. If anyone's hot, it's okay to crack a window. I know some of you are taking off sweaters and fanning yourselves. I'm hot, for sure. So... so now we have to bring ourselves back to the original question. So what about this, this act of generosity? What about this practice of generosity? What about offering the five senses to the three precious jewels? What about offering all of phenomenal existence to the three precious jewels? Okay, I can understand 
why you wouldn't cling to anything. Maybe. Are you, if you really take this moment to think about it, you might understand it, but I don't know. I'm not confident that you understand it right at this very moment. But anyway, you kind of can see, at least you can see my point, can't you? That at the end of your life, that's it. You don't have much with you. You can't take anything with you. You can see that. But what's the benefit of offering it to the three precious jewels? I mean, what's the point? If you think in a superficial way, you probably will think that the three precious jewels are pretty happy the way they are. They don't really need all this stuff, and they have it anyway, so big deal. What's the difference? You don't have to do that. Well, here's the view. First of all, if you practice in that way, constantly making offerings, you're actually constantly creating a stream of merit. Because offering is one of the major ways in which one can accomplish accumulating merit. And that merit can be dedicated to benefit sentient beings. In fact, you can actually visual, visualize yourself and all sentient beings offering the five senses, offering um, consciousness itself as we know it as humans, a perceptual process. You can think of all sentient beings gathered together with you and making offerings of the 3,000 myriads of, of, of universes purified into a precious jeweled mandala. We can think like that. We can constantly create that stream of merit. We'll be accomplishing, of course, two things, the purpose of self and the purpose of others. The purpose of self in that our minds will be purified from the stubborn habit of self-absorption and selfishness that we walk around with so continually. You see? But the other thing that we will accomplish is the purpose of others in that we will be able to offer that merit to the stream of beings who are themselves constantly involved in selfishness and self-absorption and have no awareness that they can make any offering at all. What is the value of such an offering? Because it is so cut to the bone, because it is so deep and so profound as to involve your entire perceptual process. And of course the perceptual process is the key to understanding what cyclic existence is all about. That is what cyclic existence is all about. And we've talked about that and related subjects before. But cyclic existence is only the perception and the continuing of the continuum. So involving ourselves in this deep perceptual uh, offering, this, this, this very profound uh, kind of generosity, we are engaging in a practice really that is, is quite deep and, and to my mind far more potent and more powerful than the traditional example of offering that we're given in our own Lundro where it says offering a butter lamp on an altar. Offering a butter lamp on an altar, they say that if you do that consistently and with you know, absorption, you're going to be reborn in Dewachens. All kinds of great promises made about a butter lamp. Butter lamp. How much more profound it would be to be able to engage in this deeper level of offering with truer perception involving 
our whole consciousness. And avoiding or pacifying the habit of clinging that we are so happy about, that we are so deeply involved in, that we are going steady with. It's an old term, isn't it? I hear they don't use that anymore. But anyway. I feel that the potency of such an activity as that is immeasurable. It does accomplish the purpose of self and others. And it does change the mind. Think about your mind and what makes you happy and what makes you unhappy. If you could really boil it down, it's not different from what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught us that we are unhappy and we are suffering from, we are unhappy due to and we are suffering from desire. And our whole lives are really involved in desire, establishing that desire, formulating that desire, reacting to that desire, uh, answering that desire, making more desire so that we know who's desiring and then defining our desire and then all of that stuff that we do. And if we can pacify that habitual tendency through this practice of extreme generosity, we will have accomplished something. More so than busily going around doing the Dharma thing, don't you think? more than walking around busily making the Dharma scene. I wouldn't give you a nickel for practice like that. Not a nickel. Because it's superficial and it's pretty close to useless. But if you can practice deeply from the heart, from the mind, something's happening. What is it that prevents us from being able to practice in that way? What is this deeply ingrained habitual tendency that she keeps talking about or they keep talking about? What, what, what is it? What is it that happens here? In order to understand that, we have to understand what our perceptual experience actually consists of. And that's very hard to do. Because even though you might see it on paper and you might hear it in class, the minute you leave here and something happens to you, you're going to think that that thing happened out there to you, didn't it? Didn't it? It did. You know it did. You know that it did because you saw it. <laughs> and you know, at some point you've got to stop dealing in the disprovable. You saw it and that's it, right? Well, that's how we think. We really think like that. We think that we saw something in our environment happen to us. That's what occurred. We saw it and we can measure it. We can measure how long it took for that thing to come here and happen to us. We can see all of the different causes. We can find, for instance, if someone gets mad at us, we can find the causes that made that happen, can't we? We can, well, we can try. We can think that maybe it's because they were in a bad mood. Well, if we're real honest, we might think that it's because maybe we said something to them, like last week, and now they're getting back at us. Anyway, we can always make something up. We can always find something. But what we're actually experiencing, what is actually occurring, isn't the way it seems at all. It's like 
we are constantly experiencing a picture, a display, an emanation of our own mind stream continuum. There is nothing in cyclic existence that can occur, nothing that occurs that does not arise from a cause. And if that occurrence is happening to you, then you had something to do with the cause. This is what the Buddha teaches. I didn't make this up. Nothing can happen to you that is not the result of some cause that you yourself were previously involved in. So every external event, whether it be people talking to you badly or people being unkind to you, whether it be an internal experience of hunger, even that, you know, you can say, didn't I say to you, I was hungry tonight because I didn't have enough to eat and I wanted my chicken because I worked out. Didn't I just say that to you? Well, that's not why I was hungry at all. That's not what that experience was. That experience had to have been the ripening of some karma. That experience of hunger, that even that, you could say, my stomach is empty and that's why I'm feeling it. And you will say that. But actually that experience of hunger is the ripening of some previously sown seed. It is the effect of some cause that began some time ago. Yes, it has a relative here and now expression. And the here and now expression is, my stomach was empty. My tummy was rumbling. I needed more food. But the experience of hunger and all of those circumstances surrounding it are actually the ripening of some previous karma. Everything, even down to that level, that subtle. But we can't encompass that. We can't see that because we have no sense of our true nature. We cannot see the continuum. The continuum is invisible to us, isn't it? For the most part. You can see pieces of it, glimpses maybe. But the continuum is invisible. Even if you remembered everything from the time you were born, that's all you can remember. And you don't remember that. You don't. You forgot what you did ten minutes ago that's going to bring you suffering tomorrow. You forgot that already. Certainly you don't remember what happened before the beginning of this life. Most people don't remember hardly anything of their lives. So we don't have any sight of the continuum. We have no understanding of it. How then can we understand that this is happening to us due to this expression of continuum? How can we understand that? Well, we can't. That's simple. We can't. We think that we are hungry because our stomachs are empty. And there's probably extenuating circumstances to that. It's probably Alana's fault. She didn't fix me a big enough lunch. <laughs> and, and, and probably um, it was because, because I worked out so hard. That's probably it. And probably because my blood sugar was messed up. I can think of all kinds of different reasons why I might have been felt feeling hungry. And those are reasons that I can understand because they are reasonable according to the information that I have. But the information that I don't have 
is what's making this impossible to understand. And that information is continuum. We don't understand it. We can't see it. We can't remember it. We don't know what it is. The other piece of information that's missing is we do not understand our true nature. So we have no big picture. There's no big picture. So we will make a habit, and we have the habit, and we continue to express the habit of finding these different reasons that we simply make up. And then we go through the trouble of developing scientific instruments to prove it. We do. We develop scientific instruments which we mean to measure a certain thing. And if you mean for it to measure a certain thing, by golly, it will. It will. Because you can make it happen. The experience then we, that we are having then, in order to continue on a certain straight line here, if that's possible, is not at all what is truly happening. So then we have to ask ourselves, what is truly happening? What is true, how, truly happening, and this is the only thing that is happening, is that we are constantly looking in the mirror. We are constantly seeing at the display of our karma. How is it possible, for instance, that two people experiencing exactly the same circumstance can experience it so differently? Well, of course, you're going to say it's because they have different personalities and different brains and different la-la-la-la-la-la-la. And that's because you, you made up somewhere some scientific instrument to prove that and measured what you believed in the first place was true. But in fact, the thing that you didn't set out to prove and therefore you can't prove, since proof is stupid anyway, it's just part of cyclic existence, is that these persons are experiencing two different things because they have different karma. So two people can experience the same growing up, the same parents, the same circumstances, and have a completely different experience of what's going on. I have had experiences in my own family, God love them, Buddha love them, <laughs> sitting at the table, and we will have a conversation that makes you just go, my God, what's happening here? Because you have six different people putting in input that doesn't match at all. <laughs> you wonder how it is that these people even talk. I have one son that's experiencing one thing and another son that's experiencing I don't even know what. And then another, and then I have a daughter that's, I did that. <laughs> I have a nun that's going through her stuff. I have me that's going through my stuff. Sangi's sitting there trying to ignore us all. <laughs> and we'll be six people sitting at a table and we're not having the same experience at all. And it's the same table, same food, same table. Well, I'm painting a rather exaggerated. But you, you've all been in solarium and heard our dinner, haven't you? It's pretty strange. The point that I'm trying to make is that each one of us has a different mind. Yes, we have different experience of karma. That's what different mind means. We're having a different we have a different bundle, a different package. It's almost like we have a different glaze on the glass, you know? We have a, the glass is a different color for each one of us. And that is due to our 
karma that is due to our experience. No two people will experience anything alike ever. And even the same person can experience the same thing on two different days and due to the different condition of their mind at that time it will be, it will be a completely different experience. Something that will bug the potatoes out of you one day the next day will roll right off your back and you just can't believe it was ever a problem. And it's really due to the ripening of your karma at that time. So our experience is like this mirror bounce back kind of envelope thing in which we are constantly revolving in our own habitual tendency and that habitual tendency varies somewhat due to the fact that our karma tends to be catalyzed by that experience. It tends to ripen in slightly different ways at every moment. Different inner experience, different karmic format. Like a tapestry is being woven and interlaced and interdependently arising at every moment. Your mind is not the same yesterday as it is today because different karma has ripened. And this thing that you thought was so solid, yourself, is completely different today from what it was yesterday. Completely different. The threads are completely different. But the belief makes it seem the same. The ego clinging makes it seem the same. So to relate that back to this practice of generosity that I'm recommending, What's not to offer, if you think about it? We don't offer our experience because we are fearful of losing our experience. We are fearful that if we offer something, Heaven help us, Buddha might take us up on it. You know? If I offer the experience of being a mother to my beautiful daughter, to the three precious jewels, maybe they'll take her away. You know? If I offer all of my clothing to the three precious jewels, they might take it away. They might say, okay. <laughs> You know, we've been taught that you should, met, you should offer everything to the Lama. And some of you became monks and nuns. Now they're worried they should do this. Maybe not again, you know? This is real scary. Maybe we won't offer her everything next time. She took us up on it. <laughs> it's true. So really, we don't offer because we're afraid of offering. We think that something out there is going to be lost to us but you can see, can't you, how this is a product of our own delusion. This experience of phenomena that we are having is only due to our karma. As our karma becomes more pure, more spacious, more purified, more virtuous, as our minds become more spacious, more relaxed, 
as all of that starts to happen, our experience can only be better. Isn't that true? It can only be better. Because what makes suffering is no longer there. What, what is the brick that suffering is made out of is no longer there. Suffering only happens through clinging and through desire. Only through that. It's the only way that it can happen. So, due to our delusion, we continue to lust after our experience. Just lust. And that lust continues to cause our suffering. And so we continue to lust for more, thinking that if we just had more, it wouldn't be so bad. It just wouldn't be so bad. And we don't realize that we are only compounding our suffering. This practice of generosity is meant to be an antidote to that. There is literally nothing to hold on to and no one to hold it. Just like the teaching says in our Ngundro books, if we know, of course I'm paraphrasing it, but if we know we're going to lose everything in the end anyway, why not give it up? It's only logical and create some virtue while doing it. We all know that, that giving up is going to take many different forms. Some of us will uh, show it externally by taking robes, and some of us will not. Some of us will practice in a, in a very deep kind of inner renunciation, and some of us will be quite lazy about it. All that you will ever see all that will ever be readily available as a way to indicate how that person is practicing is the result. And that's all you'll ever experience is the result of the condition of your mind. It's all you have ever experienced. It's all you ever will experience. Why not then practice this deep and profound level of generosity? Why not view phenomenal exi existence for what it is? You will in the end anyway. You'll see it disappear before your eyes. At the time of your death, you will see the elements disappear, dissolve. Whether you have the recognition to know what's going on is another story. You may only pass into unawareness and that would be for one reason and one reason only, because you lived in unawareness, lacking in awareness. Why not give it up now? Why not practice that deeply now in order to accomplish the goal in a meaningful way because it will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. Everything is impermanent. <coughs> Sometimes the ordained have, ex have uh, problems with desire. Isn't that true? They have problems with desire. Of course they do. When you take on robes, it doesn't mean you're going to stop desiring. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> <laughs> so of course you have problems with desire. 
Why not make that desire meaningful? It can be meaningful. You can offer that desire to the three precious jewels. It's not a big secret that you're feeling it. It's not a big secret that it's there. Use it. Use it as an offering. It's the most auspicious offering. The most profound and auspicious offering. And of course, that's true for lay people as well. For all of us. Anything that we see, any ego clinging that we participate in, anything, including our own eyes, and ears, nose, mouth, fingertips, everything, we will lose it soon. Why not make the having of it meaningful rather than destructive? Because as you're practicing now, it is only destructive. It is only destructive. It only increases the habitual tendency of desire. How many minutes, in conclusion, do you let go by every single day without practicing like that? Precious, precious minutes. They just kind of whoosh, go away, don't they? You lose them. What do you do instead? You sit there and think about how profound your understanding of the Dharma is. And you play with your insights. Da, 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 da. Juggle your insights in the air. What's that? What is that? Aren't you just continuing that habitual tendency of perceiving phenomenal reality according to you? That's what you've always done. How is that different? How is that meaningful? Have you ever been, have you ever had the experience, of, I, I used to be famous for this, probably still am, had this experience of coming to some amazing, mind-blowing insight. It's like the insight to end all insights. It's the one where the hallelujah chorus breaks through the clouds, <laughs> And they begin to sing, you know, and, the, the, and lo, the trees bear down and offer you their fruit. <laughs> it's so mind-blowing that finally you think, you've got it. You've got it. You understand it now. And suddenly there's peace. Your mind is at peace. It's great. You've got it. And then, maybe about two years later, when you're a little bit older, you find that you're pondering the same issue. And in pondering the same issue, you come up with a completely different insight. It's totally different. And then you have the shame. It's like, you know, the horror of psoriasis. Psychic psoriasis. You have the shame of, of remembering that two years ago you did the same darn thing. And you come up with a completely different conclusion. And now you're in a totally different space. And so the conclusion is totally different. Amen. And you're still expecting the Hallelujah Chorus. For what? For what? You, what did you do two years ago? You came to the conclusion that you were completely puffed up. You were so smart you couldn't believe it. That was what you did. You contrived for yourself a good day. And two years later you came to the same issue and used the same method to contrive for yourself a good day. But all you did was increase your ego clinging. Have you ever done that? How many of you had an experience like that? 
Oh, come on. Everybody in this room. You know this one so well, don't you? It's true. Every single one of us. Every, and we do it, we're doing it now. Right now, while I'm talking to you, you are contriving your own version of the insight that you think I want you to have. Right now. What you are not doing is offering your perception to the three precious jewels. That's what you're not doing, are you? You forgot. <laughs> right? Right. So how are we going to break this habit? We can see that it's an all-encompassing habit. It's just an all-encompassing habit. Well, you know, how do you break any habit? You break it a little bit at a time, right? Minute by minute, minute by minute. And this is the most important thing that you can do as a practitioner. It is clearly the most important thing that you will do. Because it is not only a merit-making machine, which, you know, I love those things anyway, but not only that, but it is a way to break through the seduction of phenomenal exist existence. It is a way to awaken to the nature. It is a way to break the cycle of desire and ego inflation. It's a, a quite profound. It's very simple. There's no, like, magical terma that is appearing here in the air, and we don't have any big names to put on it, but it's one of the most profound practices that anyone could do. If you did that and nothing else, you would be an excellent practitioner. And you would achieve the auspicious result. You have to break it a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, moment by moment. If you can make yourself remember to do it just three times, three times during the course of one day, and that means you have does anyone know how many, like, minutes there are in a 24-hour day? I mean, there's a lot of them, right? I don't have a calculator, so I can't figure it out. But there's a lot of minutes in a 24-hour day. So if you use three of those minutes, only three, to have three different experiences, one moment long, one minute long each of generosity, that's a start. You know, don't be thinking that you're going to try it for a minute, and because you lost it the next minute, you might as well throw it out the window. You just keep climbing back on. You fall off the horse, climb back on. Fall off the horse, climb back on. That's how you break a habit. That's how you do that kind of thing. That's how you establish that in your mind. You can do things like, what is it that you do when you want to uh, remember something? You write yourself a note, don't you? Write yourself a note. Put it on all your favorite places. Mirror. <laughs> Refrigerator, <laughs> CD player. <laughs> you can do that. Every time you turn on your CD player, you'll remember to offer the experience of sound. That, you know, you can do that. You put it on the inside of your glasses. <laughs> Yeah, you can do that. Oh, sorry. I, I, I forgot who it was. Oh, well. i tell you what we'll do. We'll get friends to help you out. Paljan, don't forget. <laughs> no, that's a very important practice for you, to offer the experience of sight. To offer perceptual experience. Very important. Will bring much better results in the next life. So... We should remind ourselves of that. 
and we should put these little reminders wherever we're most likely to find them and at the best times. Just think it through. And a little at a time, day by day, you can have that experience. I, I have to tell you, I'm sharing this to you, with you and giving this to you, not as a, like, um, I'm really not trying to demonstrate my prowess in this particular practice because I don't think I particularly have any. But um, I have had the experience of going walking or running or doing something and at the whole, and at every moment that I was doing that for some extended period of time, simply every time I would, ha I would sense the experience of perception, it's like I would turn it over immediately. So it was constantly being turned over. It felt like there was no, you take perception and you hold on to it and you make something. Have you noticed that? You make something. But you can, you can come between that moment of having the perceptual experience and making something. It, it's tricky. And you have to really practice it. But you can come between that moment and learn to put a little space in there. And that little space you can use to simply turn it over, to dedicate it, you know, to offer it. You can, you can, you can really get something going there that's like a, a, re, a repeatable experience. It kind of, you can learn to have it automatically. That, that it, the moment you ex experience your own perception, you avoid that forming it into a superstructure that enhances your ego by merely turning it over, turning it over, turning it over. So many things happen it's that it's difficult to describe. First of all, your, per your whole personality will change. Your personality will change. Your behavior will change. has to change because all of your behavior is based on desire and based on inflaming your ego. Not only that, but if you engage in that kind of practice for an extended period of time, you can have something like a blissful experience. Now please, when I tell you this, <laughs> now children, I love you so much, but I'm telling you this for many different reasons. One of them is, yes, I know, it's a little carrot. It's a little carrot. It's true, it's true. And I'm, and I'm telling you that also because, I don't know, I just think it makes for a more enjoyable class. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you this with dread and fear in my heart, because I know what's going to happen. You're going to go for a walk, and put some minimal effort into this practice, and you're going to contrive for yourself this amazing blissful experience in which you are literally frothing at the mouth. And then you're going to take that experience and be, have a more meaningful self because of it. You know, it's, it's going to make you more meaningful and your day is more meaningful and you're going to hold on to that and it's going to be you all over again, isn't it? That's what's going to happen. So don't do that. Just engage in the practice and continually make that offering and you'll find that there's a happiness that comes with that. There's a joy, a spontaneous feeling of joy. Now, don't cling to the feeling. The minute, the minute you see yourself sensing the feeling, you've got to turn that over, too. That's the first thing to turn over. You have to really let that go. Not let it go like... I've seen people let go, and I've seen people let go. I don't mean, I don't mean letting it go like um, 
pronouncing to the world that you, Akin Lamo, have let this go. That's not letting it go, you know. You simply turn it over. You simply make offerings. That experience of joy is an offering. You can, there are many ways that you can do that. How can you actually do that? You can do that by actually visualizing the experience as a kapala filled with jewels. You can think that it is like that. You can assume that it is like that. You can intend that it is like that. You can actually conceive of the world and all of its experiences and all of your connections with the world through the five senses as a kapala filled with precious jewels. But mostly there's this subtle moment right before you take that experience that you're having and make something out of it. There's this subtle moment that once you find it, you can simply use that moment to make offering. So I hope that um, that this is helpful to you. I hope that you will actually use this. You know, this is the kind of teaching where if you do use it, it can, be, it can change your life. You know, it can really change everything about your practice. And I don't think I'm being arrogant when I say that. I, I'm only saying that from personal experience because it is a practice that I use. And I feel that it has contributed more to my well-being than anything. And I, I could find lots of reasons to be unhappy if I really wanted to. But I, I feel that this practice, to me, has been like a happiness machine, you know? It's really like a happiness machine. And I feel that it has deepened my mind. I feel that it has made my mind more spacious, more relaxed, more peaceful. I feel that it has created a lot of merit. I feel that I imagine that or that in my mind I have sort of like an altar in my mind that I can constantly make offerings at. And you should think of your consciousness as being an altar and all phenomenal experience as being the offering. You should think like that. You should really carry that deeply and the minute you decide that you have got to have the best apple Start giving those apples to the Buddhas. <laughs> that's what, that's what you should, should really practice as your deepest practice. So again, if, it, if you do practice it, it will be most helpful to you, most beneficial. But if you don't practice it, then it's almost a poison that you've heard this. Because you can dupe yourself, you can have some minimal thought about it, you know. And you can dupe yourself into thinking that you're practicing it, and you're really not. You're really not. Still lusting after those apples. But, and so it, be, it acts then as a poison to you. Don't let it act as a poison to you. Please practice it deeply and sincerely and every moment. And start with any moment that you have. Even if it's just three times a day for one minute each time, it's a start. Please do use silly, silly reminders like stick em notes, you know. Um, just, just find different ways to turn your mind toward that, to break that habit. Because, and, and remind yourself, sit down and almost practice a ngundro of that teaching. A ngundro of that teaching would be to practice sitting down and remembering and recognizing that nothing that you make a big deal about now will you be able to take into the bardo with you. If you really think about that, 
it's going to seem silly to do anything else. If you spend the whole day cooking and shopping and working and being and making and doing and all that kind of stuff, you have to think about um, at the end, at the end of, you have to think, look back at that day and say, what of that day is going to go into the bardo with me? The cooking, the doing, the making, the thinking, none of it. Only the habit. So you have to consider in that regard and practice in Lundro that will actually turn your mind toward this most profound and supreme generosity. It makes no sense to do anything else. The thing I like about Buddhism, as I told you before, I really am not a very religious person, and I don't like religion all that much. I certainly don't like organized religion. I would never have chosen this. But the thing I like about Buddhism so much is that it's so reasonable. Isn't that a reasonable way to look at it? Isn't it reasonable to break the cycle of disappointment that every sentient being since the beginning of time has felt at the end of their lives? Now, when they come to the realization that they've wasted most of their time, it's, it seems reasonable to me to do that. It seems like the only true end of suffering to live that way. How reasonable and how, how supreme of all the philosophies that one can engage in. Because it gives us that technology, that handle, that way to understand. Amazing, isn't it? Really amazing. Oh. Mm -hmm.